Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. In today's episode, we are talking to Erin B. Taylor, an economic anthropologist with experience both in the applied financial sector as well as in the academic sector. She holds a PhD in sociocultural anthropology and a postdoc on financial mobility. And she is the co-founder of Canela Consulting, a ethnography-driven research and consulting group focused on finance and technology. In today's episode, we talk to Erin about her experience of applying anthropology to research the financial financial technology sector, like mobile payments, both in Haiti and the Netherlands. We also explore what is money, what type of relationships people build with it and its providers, and the ethics of methods of asking people about their relationship to money. Lastly, we talk about the relationship between regulation and design, and the spaces of convergence between ethnographic and design research in the business sector. We hope you enjoy it. First of all, how would you define um, financial technology and anthropology coming from your experience of working in this field? Well, financial technology I just define as uh, any technology put to financial ends. Uh, and this is an interesting one because many people these days think of financial technology as things relating to mobile phones, uh, electronic devices, the internet. But if you think about it, uh, things like shell money, tally sticks, uh, even the abacus are also financial technology. And I like to take that long-term view because it tells us more about our relationship with managing money over time. As for anthropology, I actually really still like the old definition by Haviland, which he published in 1974, which is the study of humankind in all times and places. For me, just that just rings true. It gets to the core of uh, what anthropology is about. And I know many people like to sort of go, go further and talk about culture and uh, get more into details, but I, I do still feel that uh, big, big, broad, brush definition works to cover the sort of four fields approach. Yeah. And um, I also wanted to ask you, what would be your definition of money? Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a really good question. So there's the, the typical uh, economic explanation is money is like a means of exchange, a store, a store of value, etc. Um, it's really hard to define money these days because you get new kinds of money floating out everywhere. You have things like Bitcoin, you have festival tokens. Our idea of what money is has really uh, is really been shifting lately. I think uh, it's becoming confusing for people because. Uh, for the last, say, 50, 100 years or maybe even longer, we've tended to think of money as money that's issued by the state. But now I think in a certain sense the, um, the true nature of money is coming out and that is that it's not so much something that an institution uh, puts out there but it's actually an agreement between human beings. It's an agreement of exchange. And I think the person who uh, described this best was probably David Graeber in his book, uh, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, where he said money is really just a promise to pay, and that's all it is. So it can actually be a verbal agreement. It doesn't have to be a token at all. I'd like to, for you to kind of talk a bit to your own experience of um, and your background of working with anthropology and with financial technology, how you come up to where you are today? 
definitely mostly by accident. When I was an undergraduate, I was also always uh, very fascinated by economic anthropology. It was my favourite subject, although I would have really struggled to explain why. I think maybe possibly because anthropology took the economy, which I was used to thinking about in a certain way, you know, how economics is presented through the media, and turned it on its head. Mm-hmm. So you got a very different view of what the economy was about. And what I learned that the, was the economy wasn't just about markets and numbers. Uh, it's actually about people and how they relate and trade with each other. So that was probably what grabbed me in the early days. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I went and did my PhD research in Santo Domingo, and I looked at how people were investing their capital into their housing and into their community environment by, say, building streets and so on, and how that actually changed their relationships with each other over time. So I guess my sort of economic foray into research really was consolidated in that period of my PhD research. But at that time, I never thought about actually looking into money or financial instruments specifically. And it wasn't until I did research with Heather Horst uh, in Haiti and on the border of Haiti and the Spring Republic that we really started looking at money. We originally went to the border zone to look at how people were uh, transferring value across the border, not necessarily money but also things like mobile phone airtime. And then we got asked to do this research on mobile money in Haiti Uh, and how people were transferring money around and uh, also how they were using mobile phones because what had happened was there had been a a big earthquake uh, in January 2010 in Haiti and after this there was an initiative uh, by uh, the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation and USAID to develop mobile money services in Haiti and they wanted to invest a lot in this. So they asked us to uh, look into uh, this money transfer situation and that's when I really started to get hooked on the money research. Mm. And at the time I thought, oh, maybe it's a fad, I'm interested now, but probably my interest will go away because what can be so interesting about money? But actually I found that I became completely hooked. I decided that I loved money research and now it's pretty much <laughs> uh, almost everything I write about has to do with money these days. And um, and how do you work these days? Are you still in the academic sector? Are you mixing academic and applied? Uh, I'm definitely mixing. I'm formally, I finished a, a postdoc at the University of Lisbon in June last year. So I'm formally out of academia, although I did uh, just take up an affiliation with a, a local university here in Amsterdam. Uh, so I'm still staying connected and still publishing. I've still got work going on. But uh My main job these days is working as a consultant with my own company, Canela Consulting, uh, which I run with uh, Gawain Lynch. And uh, you're consulting in the same space of financial services? and Well, it's economic. I would say it's economic issues generally. So uh, I do a lot of work uh, in uh, the fintech area, you know, financial technology, uh, and uh, I have a, a potential project uh, looking into sort of more economic matters, which I Looking into your experience um, on around this topic of financial um, services, what would you say is kind of like the nature of, of relationship that people build with money, and especially with money in this in this world of digital transformation? It's quite a complex question. I think people's relationship with money uh, can be very troubled, and it can also be very rewarding. 
And that's not necessarily something that's new. Uh, technology has changed a little bit, I think. Uh, but uh, what interests me the most about people's relationship with money is precisely how integral having money is to achieving your sort of life projects, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to uh, have fulfilling relationships in the, in the modern day. You know, things like, for example, uh, if you don't have some financial security, that tends to disrupt what you can do with your life, what you can make of your life. If you don't have money at hand to go out to dinner, then, you know, your sort of your ability to uh, hang out with your friends is also very limited. And people have so many stresses related to money in the course of their everyday lives. Some of them are, are large stressors, especially when people are in debt. Many of them are small stressors. And I've been doing interviews with people to uh, and, and very much looking at what are those micro stressors that people find in their everyday lives in relation to money. And um, I think in some ways financial technology can help people to overcome those emotional difficulties. In some ways it can make things worse. Uh, One great example of how technology can help is I have a friend who was telling me that she uh, was once in a supermarket, went to the counter, all her groceries bagged, went to make a purchase. She tried to use her debit card to pay and it was rejected. She had no cash on her. So what do you do in that circumstance? Normally you would have to abandon everything and leave because she couldn't pay or try to promise to come back with money. But actually she was able to stand there on the spot and transfer money from her business account to her personal account instantly and then pay that transaction. And that is something that's quite new and quite exciting. We, we had a speaker a few, I think actually a few days ago, that was speaking um, in a similar way about how... Um, the relationship that we have with money is, is very much connected um, to the relationship that we have with the people that we have around us. Um, yeah. And it's a marker of, you know, that type of um, um, sociality. So um, I was wondering in, 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 this, in this kind of situation with, uh, with the, all these new technologies that are, that are coming on the, on the market, um, have you seen people kind of use um, their social networks in a different way um, through these financial instruments? I wouldn't say that it particularly changes the way people use their social networks that much. I would say money just gives you more money and the new financial tools that are around give you more options in how you you relate to people financially. But I don't think for the most part, it tends to change things, but there are exceptions. So one exception was noted by Sybil Kusimba in her work on mobile money in Kenya, and her concern was that people were starting to feel more stressed because of mobile money, because what mobile money meant was that because you can make instant transactions, she saw more people requesting money from people, so people felt more pressure to give, and that uh, man, there was a new form of stress in their lives. Yes, we had, uh, we, we had her on the podcast and um, she talked about her work in Kenya and what was interesting for us because we've never experienced that part of the world is how much money um, in Kenya is kind of connected very much to how, how community handles money as a social thing. So it's, yeah. it's not really an individualistic relationship between you and your money that kind of singles your place in society somehow. But it's more like money is a way for you to um, connect to the people around you in different ways. And there's a lot of social capital associated with the redistribution of money inside the community and by the community. 
So, um, and that we, we, at the point when we were talking to her about that, I was, I was trying to ask her, but probably not in the best of ways, how would that differ versus how the Western societies kind of deal with money? Because you have a completely different ideology of, um, of, uh, of how we live together as a community and what money means into that in Western, in the Western societies. So then when you have these instruments of social redistribution, social transfer, um, how would that kind of work? I'm thinking here mostly in, um, um, not necessarily the products that, that exist in Africa, but more like something like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency and all these other forms of financial instruments that rely on peer-to-peer -peer social networks. Yeah. Yeah, well, we are seeing the rise of many more platforms like, um, you know, peer-to-peer -peer insurance, for example, where rather than go through an insurance company, you just get a community together to insure yes. each other. Yes. That's not actually new, though. Mm. That was happening already in the Netherlands hundreds of years ago. It's just come back <laughs> thanks to the internet. It used to happen in small communities very in very local settings, and then it went away when society grew bigger. But now people can connect over the internet. We're seeing it return, which I think is actually really interesting. Yeah. Um, also, you see the growth in things like apps to give to charities, so to make it easy for people to give and then to choose which charity they want to give to rather than having to go directly to the website of a charity or, or find that information. And another interesting application um, is in the use of paying for things like club fees, uh, which actually is quite interesting to me because uh, even though it's, you could say, oh, well, it's just a, just a means of payment, it's not that social, it's nevertheless a way for these clubs to organise themselves and have more control over their accounting, which makes their life easier. What does this mean for the intermediaries of the financial sector? The jury's still out in the, on that one. I think uh, people are debating that one hotly as to what will happen. Some people express concern that because there are so many new companies arising, and because, especially here in Europe with changing regulations, banks are being forced to open up uh, so that they have to allow other parties to work with them, other companies to work with them. Uh, people are worried that banks will kind of lose their importance and they'll just become like a, a platform for other businesses to operate on top of them. They'll just provide the infrastructure. And people have been made, have made parallels with what has happened in many countries with respect to telecommunications. Because what often happens uh, is that there'll be one national telecommunications network and then they're forced to open up and then all these other companies uh, use their lines that they have constructed. Yeah. So the parallel is made with banks that they will actually lose their position. But other people argue, actually, no, that gives banks a more powerful place because because they have the infrastructure, then they should be able to make all kinds of uh, profits off of that. Um, they just have to uh, look more closely at their models and probably change their business model. Definitely, there are there are many more partnerships now between uh, banks and uh, the new fintech companies. You have uh, lots like Avian Avro and many others are working with smaller companies to develop apps and uh, actually make the payments behind seats and so on and so forth. It's not entirely new because banks have always used third parties to do certain parts of the processing, but it's becoming more towards the consumer end so that actually the products offered to consumers now are often developed by these third-party startups. One of the questions that I had around these new relationships that are formed between um, people using financial services and the new players, um, how easily trust is built in these new financial players? Or do you see that as being an issue? 
it can definitely be an issue. It depends a lot on where in the world you are and what the circumstances are. So here in the Netherlands, I would say that people are very, very used to using the same companies, like the so-called incumbents. They're used to using the banks and the insurance companies, uh, especially for health insurance. Uh, and apart from that, people here have not tended to be very adventurous when it comes to using financial services. Mm-hmm. And you do find startups complaining about that. A few weeks ago, I was at a roundtable with a bunch of uh, financial technology startups and they were sort of saying, oh, um, we have this problem. Uh, we don't understand. Uh, we thought consumers would be uptaking our products much faster and they're not. So what's going on? And I sort of said to them, well, what made you think that they would take them up faster? And everybody started laughing and said, well, we want to make money. <laughs> That is true. You know, in New Zealand, uh, we have exactly the same situation. We did a one one project in the financial sector here, um, and it was exactly the same situation um, of uh, a fintech company that wanted to understand why people um, have a rate of adoption of this new technology that is quite slow in comparison to what they would expect. And when we did our little piece of research, we kind of came back to them and we said, look, you have people that have been in a relationship with a bank for more than 20 years where you put your money and who you trust with your money is a very, very personal, intimate decision, at least in this culture, that that people don't make that easily, especially when it comes to financial services that um, they associate clearly with a bank. Yeah, like taking out a credit card. Like that's a service that they really associate with somebody that it's trustworthy like a bank. And plus, you enter into a partnership of at least a few years, right? It's not like yes. you just go into a transaction and, and, and then you can go out if you don't enjoy it. It's, it's a quite a serious decision and, and people take their time to with making that decision. Um, I, I would say it's not just an issue of trust. I know that in the UK, for example, there are very low levels of uh, account switching and what research indicates is that people just see all the banks as providing the same product. They say, why should I switch banks when the products don't differ? Uh, there's no advantage. It's, it's too much work to make that transaction. The question will be is can the startups and alternative financial service providers convince people that, in fact, they are different, they do offer something that's better, maybe more trustworthy, maybe more personalised and so on and so forth. And that personalization, especially, is probably an area where startups can make a lot of difference. Yeah. So what would you say, for example, with these tendencies to use autom- automatization for everything? And kind of what I've seen with a lot of start- startups in the, in the fintech sector is that they tend to um, try to remove the human element in the process as fast as possible. And it's also, yeah. I think, in the pursuit of, you know, optimizing their reach and, and kind of like um, reducing the cost, right? Because the customer service is the thing that kind of takes up a lot of costs as they grow. So... Um, and they also come with, with, with a strong perception that when, once you automatize something, it will happen faster, right? You just press a button and whatever it is that you want to access happens. And there's a lot of resistance, at least that we've seen in this part of the world, to that process from some people. Because, you know, automatization for them comes also with what type of data do you want for me? Who are you to want that data for me? And, um, yeah, I, I wonder if you can speak a bit to that from your perspective. Yeah, I think there are clear benefits and also clear dangers. 
I think uh, many, many people appreciate things like being able to pay their bills automatically every month and not having to remember. It saves people a lot of time and stress. Yeah. It saves people money because they're not paying fines because they've forgotten to pay their bills on time. They can uh, top up their travel cards automatically and so on and so forth. And that can really help your life run much more smoothly. However, being able to do that depends upon having enough money in the bank in the first place because if you run out of money, your payments start getting rejected and then you can run into problems. Uh, one person I interviewed had a problem with their travel card here in the Netherlands in that they had automatic top-up set on so that they every as soon as their balance got below a certain level, uh, the company would charge them 50 euros to top it up. And uh, one of the payments got rejected. And they didn't realise this and somehow they weren't checking their mail properly and then all of a sudden their debt had been sent to a debt collector who was calling them to uh, get this money back. And this was in a very short space of time and I was quite shocked that they would actually take those steps so quickly. So I think there's a danger there. If things are automated, they really disappear from your view. Mm. So that would also impact the way you view money management, right? Yeah, how, what you can afford and what you can't, and how do you allocate? How do you allocate your mix of expenses? No. Yes, definitely, definitely. And uh, you have to think of if you don't have enough money, you have to think all the time: Do I have enough money in the bank to pay for this? Oh, I only have cash today because I have no money left in the bank. That means I can't shop at this particular supermarket because they only take debit cards and don't take cash anymore. Mm -hmm. The disappearance of cash. Yeah. In the Netherlands specifically, is a really big deal. It's uh, actually making life more complicated in some ways rather than easier. Yeah, because with cash, it's very easy to see I have enough or I don't have enough, no? Uh, yes and no, actually. Something very interesting has been actually shifting there. Uh, some years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, or probably more now, to be honest, uh, when cards... Paying with debit cards and credit cards started to become more popular. A lot of research said we are concerned about this shift because we think people won't be able to track their budgets so well if they're paying with a card than if they're paying with cash. Mm -hmm. And the main reason given was that people just didn't pay attention when they were paying with a card. They didn't notice how much things cost, whereas when you have to count out cash, you do. Mm -hmm. However, my interviews here have indicated that attitudes are really shifty. So some people I interviewed said that they used to prefer to uh, budget with cash. They found it more real and they found debit cards to not be real money. But now their attitude has completely shifted the other direction. And now they say whenever they have cash in their wallet, they feel like it's free money and they can just spend it on whatever they like. And it's actually the cards that they use to account with it. So how does that shift come about? People just change their attitudes as to what they view as real money. I mean, if a, if a debit card is new to you, then it's not going to seem as real as something you've been using for years. Mm -hmm. But once you get used to using that debit card, then the money, the cash becomes the weird thing yeah. and you don't know what to do with it. So you're not thinking about what it means. Yeah, it, it, it really depends on your habits and your practices, right? And when yes. something becomes normalized and what does it mean? I was wondering, one of the topics in, in that Costa, because you speak a lot to your interviews, one of the topics that we discussed with Sybil had to do around how do you research this very sensitive and intimate topic, you know? Money. <laughs> how do you get people to speak to their relationship to money? Uh, it's, it's not too difficult if you approach people in the right way. Uh, what I do is 
Uh, I do a lot of interviews with people uh, in a couple of formats. One is the portable kit study. And in the portable kit study, you ask your interviewee to take everything out of their bag and wallet, including mm -hmm. all their cards, receipts, dirty tissues, whatever, and put it on the table and talk about all the items. And the other study I use is the home tour where you go around people's houses and you get them to show you where they keep their bills, where they keep their tax documents, where they store coins, etc. So you get a sense of their money. But these things could be very problematic. You might think that people would be very reluctant to do this. But I find so long as you frame it well up front and say, look, we don't want to know what your income is. We don't want to know how much savings you have, how much debt you're in or anything like that. We just are interested in how you use these things to pay and how you think about money generally. People generally tend to open up. And I even found that to be true in, in Haiti where we were warned that no one would ever speak to us about these issues. Mm -hmm. But again, if you approach people for that's their story rather than for data as per se, then people yeah, because data is, is kind of also like an automatic, uh, you know, judgment somehow, you know, that it, yeah. like the number signifies a, a judgment and a placement um, and that makes it quite difficult for them to talk about it, no? Yes, exactly. Uh, so I was wondering also in your experience, um, how do companies that you've worked with um, approach understanding the consumers that they build financial products for? Good question. Um, it's a very hard question to answer. It's something I'm currently investigating. I'm about to hopefully do a series of interviews with banks and other financial service providers to get more to the heart of that question of how they really go about designing financial products, especially with financial inclusion aims in mind. Mm -hmm. So how do you take into account people who might have some sort of a disability or who are older or who are maybe not so financially literate or, or technically literate? Um, I feel like the process is uh, a bit iterative with respect to how this design happens, but the actual mechanisms to a certain extent can be a little bit mysterious sometimes. Uh, with our research in Haiti looking at mobile money, we looked at how two different telecommunications designed mobile money services uh, to, um, to be usable by a population who are often uh, uh, mostly illiterate uh, and sometimes uh, financially uh, not very well educated either, although opinions uh, vary on, on whether that is in fact true or not. Our work with uh, telecommunications companies in Haiti uh, sort of demonstrated two very different ways that uh, design can be made for this population. So one of the companies in their mobile money service uh, developed a system where people you could send money and receive money and manage their money via text messaging. And the other one would send and receive money do the same transactions by entering strings of numbers. So we looked at which one would be easier for a population that might not be able to read, for example. And you would think the strings of numbers would be uh, easier to, to operate because most people understand they can read numbers even if they can't read letters. But actually we found that that was probably not true because entering the strings of numbers required you to read a leaflet to explain which numbers were for which purpose. So it's sort of... Um, yeah, it sort of didn't quite work in the end. So, but we didn't actually get an opportunity to look into the thinking that went behind that. I think that was more like well, they were experimenting with different ways to reach out and then iterating from there on in. Yeah. 
But from your own experience, you you in in the Netherlands, you 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 haven't worked with startups or with companies trying to understand um, the consumers of the fintech products. Not yet, no. So it's a new project that I'm just about to embark on. Okay, and and what are your kind of like expectations of this of this field of application of anthropology? Uh, you mean with respect to um, using anthropology to understand the design, the, the, the design thinking? Yes, yeah, applying anthropology in the in kind of like this business sector, corporate sector. Yeah, well, um, I think there are a, a number of ways in which an anthropological perspective can contribute. Uh, one is with respect to understanding how the companies think, and the other is with respect to bringing insights about people to that design process. Yes. With respect to understanding how, how the companies think, uh, I feel that often companies will tell you a very nice story about how they go about the design process. But then perhaps when you observe the design process on the ground, maybe something different is happening. You know, people are guessing a lot, they're using some data that they've collected on customers for feedback, but a lot of it really is uh, just playing with different uh, different options, different uh, user experience, uh, user interface setups and seeing what happens. And with that respect, uh, there is something very useful that comes out of anthropology that helps understand that process, and that is that anthropologists very much tend to focus on not just what people say they do, but what they actually do and try to examine the gap between those two. So when observing a company and their design process, if you look at what they say they do and then what they actually do, it gives you insight into how the design process actually happens. Yeah. A similar thing is true with understanding people and the use of money. Uh, as most of us cannot really articulate our financial lives, uh, and this has got nothing to do with your literacy or education level, most of us will just struggle to explain uh, to someone asking questions how you actually manage your money and why you do that. Uh, and it's funny doing interviews, you find that people start thinking about things they've never thought of before and get quite interested in their own finances after that. But again, it's, with anthropology, it's a, it's a question of uh, not only listening to what people tell you, but also watching what they do. Mm. That's really yeah. And 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 how can you do, um, how do you do that normally? Um, do you spend more time with the same the same people that you also interview? How, how what would be kind of like a? I think that this time is kind of like a critical struggle um, point for anthropologists working in the applied sector. Mm, um, yeah. So I'm always interested to understand better um, other people's practices around this uh, around this thing. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, if, if, you, if you get the chance to um, to go overseas and away from the office, it makes it a little easier to carve out the time you need for observations. In Haiti, we basically spend a lot of time hanging around different people and just ob uh, opportunities would just arise to observe how people made payments, how they would transfer money and so on. It's very easy when you can just hang around for weeks at a time to make those observations. If you have less time, then sometimes you just need to be a bit more interventionist. So, for example, um, mobile phone research is actually a great example. You can, if you're doing interviews, you can always make, ask people to show you how they would go about making a transaction, for example. And, uh, then you can see the steps they go through to do that. Uh, and that will sort of give you more of an idea of how they think because what normally happens is if you ask people to do something rather than just talk, then... As they're doing something, they realise what it is they're doing that might be different to what they thought they were doing, and then they will actually explain that to you as you go along. Yeah, I think in design thinking, they they have um, they have some ways of trying to do that as well, like kind of like observing people as they go through an application process or to a to a process, and getting them to kind of 
reflect why they go from A to B to C in that order or in that way? <laughs> yes, yeah. There are lots of really cool ways of doing that now, especially out of, coming out of usability studies mm-hmm. and things like service design research using some pretty interesting diary methods. I discovered one the other day. Um, I was visiting a, a, an agency called Coast Service Design here in Amsterdam, and they use these amazing diaries with uh, consumers to, to track what they do. Uh, but these diaries aren't just bulk write down some text, they have like features on them and things that people can interact with and draw and label so that uh, they prompt people to engage in a range of different ways and so they elicit different kinds of information than you would just get from an ordinary interview or diary study. What, what would you say would be what anthropology brings to the sector that is kind of more different or unique? Yeah, with respect to financial behaviour, there have been uh, a great deal of uh, studies done coming out of the behavioural sciences. So I'm thinking uh, behavioural psychology, behavioural economics. Mm-hmm. And this research has been uh, pretty amazing, to be honest. It has really shown some interesting things about how we think about money and our biases, how our biases come into play with money. Uh, but all that research is pretty much done in labs. Uh, some of it might be done in field experiments, but most of it takes place in a lab. So what anthropology can provide there is a greater insight into how people actually uh, do things on the ground, You know how they might, uh, in fact, um, go through the process of trying to do something and then these biases come into play. And what would you say would be the difference versus a service designer doing that or, or somebody that is uh, doing design thinking? Everybody's asking that question at the moment. <laughs> I think they're converging so much. Uh, what I'm seeing is that anthropology, service design, UX research, uh, many of these kinds of practices in the applied world are starting to converge and people are not sure where the boundaries lie anymore. Uh, Gawain Lynch and I recently started a meetup group here in the Netherlands called Ethnoboral. And this is just a very casual get-together to people to talk about the research they do and uh, exchange professional tips. And we found that most of the people coming along are not anthropologists by training. They are service designers or industrial engineers and and, uh, and so on. And some of them have said, well, I saw the name Ethnoboral, Meetup for a Professional Ethnographer, and I thought, well, I'm not really an ethnographer, but it sounds relevant. So they come along to the VIP anyway and they find that actually it is relevant because we're all interested in the same thing. We're all interested in how do you get to consumers? How do you try to understand what they're really thinking, what they're really feeling, what the experience is for them? And that's actually what brings us all together. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of like you said a lot of convergence point between all of these disciplines and uh, sometimes we we kind of want to put those borders up to kind of defined by opposition uh, mm. and I think it's uh, from my experience working with design thinking practitioners and working in teams that had design thinking practitioners it's actually very helpful because they are a very good translator um, of somehow the anthropologist world and the corporate world mm. so it's a yeah. very it's a good, good good way to have a mixed team where kind of um, people manage as a group to kind of design an intervention in a business because one of the challenges yes. that I've seen with anthropology in the applied sector is in that space of designing an intervention, you know, because yes. I think anthropologists are really good at uncovering the social realities of, of a group, um, linking it to larger societal um, manifestations and processes. But then when it comes to, okay, so what do you do with that, right? 
Um, should I make the button red or brown or bigger or shorter? <laughs> should I put this yeah. text or the other? There's such a huge gap between those two things. Exactly. Um, so I think it always helps when you have a, a more mixed approach uh, when it turns a team and competences because it kind of brings them all together in a very good way. Exactly. I think uh, human beings are very complex, so you really do need mixed teams to try to get at what people are, are doing. It's, it's None of us are experts anymore, especially yeah. when it comes to people and, and, and such a complicated environment of financial services. None, there, are, there are no experts. You, yeah. you can try to be a thought leader, but you're only going to be leading the thought in one particular direction because you cannot possibly be across everything that's going on and everything you need to know. Yeah. So putting together mixed teams is absolutely essential these days. You cannot depend upon one discipline. And I really liked what you were mentioning earlier with um, understanding the organization because I think that's also another advantage that an anthropologist can bring to the table. Because the, the dynamics between that group that is designing something um, are very, um, they really contribute to the output, right? Like all of those layers of meanings and, um, and, and relationships of power and objectives and values of the, of the corporate group. You know, an anthropologist can really shine a lot of light into those dynamics and, and kind of maybe improve the process or um, a collaboration to drive a better outcome for the product. Yeah, and uh, there are certainly uh, many people uh, with anthropological training working as uh, organisational consultants as well, looking at organisational culture issues. It's uh, that's a, apart from the consumer re uh, research angle, the organisational culture consulting has been probably the other really big area that anthropologists have gone into. Yeah. Precisely because we can take take an institution that looks complicated and messy, and we can start spotting the patterns yes. within it. But, you know, from my personal experience in this space, I, I've realized that you can't really do one without the other. So when you, when you work in innovation process, when I worked in innovation processes where I had to kind of like uncover insights, but I was also then part of the team that was supposed to drive that insight into a product feature or um, when you are inside the team, um, they become to a certain extent almost like a second field work. Um, so... You kind of end up doing both works. You kind of do consumer work and you kind of do organizational work within sometimes the same project. Um, and there's even a third level of work that I've, I've observed myself doing, which is, I think, in anthropology, you have a certain vocabulary and a certain way of talking about people and things and um, the relationships that they build with themselves and the world around them. And the same in the corporation, right? They have a certain vocabulary to talk about their values and their objectives. And, and sometimes when you are the only anthropologist in a corporate group, you kind of have to um, try to kind of like understand that new world, which is the world and objectives yes. of the corporations as a whole. And, you know, how does it work with your world, no? <laughs> yes. Try, trying to understand how uh, a wide array of companies working financial technology think is a big challenge because they're all so different. They don't understand each other. Mm. Yeah, they really don't. They complain about this quite a lot. The startups will say, we don't understand the banks. Why do the ba banks behave like this and the banks will say, well, we don't understand that what the startups are doing and people actually within the space, operating within the same space and often working together, find that they don't really understand each other. Yeah, and there's a complex, um, there's a complex kind of web of intersection between all of these uh, players, right? Um, yeah. In order for that financial product or digital financial product to embed itself in the lives of, of people that use it, all of this ecosystem somehow needs to find a balance together, right? 
Exactly. Because if you're just innovating on one little end of the of this ecosystem, it's not going to drive a product that has a very good user experience or that fits within um, a social group that will have to use it, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, That's right. So um, yeah, I think I think an anthropologist has a lot to to kind of contribute to that space and to that all even that collaboration between all of these third parties. Um, I wanted I wanted to ask you like two two other questions. One would have to do with I, I know that in the financial sector there's a lot of um, regulations that kind of guide um, how to approach people, what type of products to develop. Um, um, I was wondering how does this this regu regulatory space kind of constricts but also stimulates um, innovation from the from what you've seen in this world. Yeah, well, uh, the changing regulations in Europe are very much opening up the space to make it easier for more companies to participate and for more companies to, to uh, access consumers. So in terms of uh, corporate uh, innovation at that sort of small to medium enterprise level, people are very excited because there is so much more they can already do and even more they will be able to do when certain regulations roll out regarding uh, data sharing, you know, mm -hmm. what banks can and can't keep to themselves. So for the company's point of view, uh, it's actually fairly positive. Um, from the consumer point of view, it's a little bit different because consumers don't have a lot of visibility normally over what is changing in terms of regulations and they just find it quite confusing. And uh, an interesting thing here is the regulations uh, making the smaller and medium-sized companies excited about what they can do. They see the future as being very positive, not just for themselves, but for consumers. From their point of view, the world will be a better place for consumers because consumers will have much more choice. Mm -hmm. Products will be more personalised. Uh, in fact, in Europe, uh, consumers should uh, end up having a lot more control over their own financial data as well. Mm -hmm. But the consumer's point of view is very different because actually they don't see all these benefits. What they see is uh, that the increasing number of payments, possibilities and financial services around can actually make life more confusing. Uh, you have to keep track of many more products now. And also they're very concerned about what will happen in the future with respect to their data. They're worried about identity theft, uh, they're worried about uh, data loss and data being used for purposes for what is, you know, which is not intended. And this is something that the regulators and supervisors are struggling with. Last week I went to a conference in The Hague on the new payment services directive, the second one, which is uh, rolling out. And the supervisors from the different banks were and institutions were saying, we don't know how to get to consumers, we don't know how to talk to consumers, and we don't know how to really understand how consumers are thinking about their data and, and why they're so afraid and, and how we can sort of teach them that, in fact, they will have more control. So there's a massive disjunct in terms of how people are talking to each other or not in society at the moment. And um, are they exploring any avenues of kind of understanding better um, how people relate to this, this new situation? In summer, for example, the, the Dutch national, uh, the Dutch central bank, the DNB, does a lot of really great research uh, with consumers on, say, payment and uh, debit options. Uh, one researcher in particular called Nicole Yonker has um, published uh, lots of papers that look into people's attitudes to sort of things like payments and, and debt and cash and all this sort of stuff. So they really do do a lot of research on the ground. Uh, but they are a Dutch 
uh, government organisation. Uh, but the European organisations don't seem to be engaging enough on the ground level to understand consumers at all, and that worries me. You know, I get worried about how can you go ahead and roll out these regulations with these massive implications without knowing for sure how consumers will respond, what is actually in consumers' interests, and how to talk to consumers about what's going on. There seems to be no roadmap for doing that. Hopefully they will they will do it in the future more, um, or maybe it will be a push from the market that will kind of stimulate them to do something around that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I think Europe in that in that space at, at least I think it's quite quite ahead because there's still a lot of um, uh, a lot of work being done that I haven't seen in other markets around around this space. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you has to do um, with inequality. You know, I think um, I think one of the um, experiences that I had, you know, kind of like um, working a bit in this in this financial um, in financial sector, had to do with uh, dealing with a group of people that are seen invisible because of their bad credit score um, and seen as potentially not good consumers. Um, and and that that perception didn't come necessarily from the company, but but came actually from the people themselves as well. Okay. Right. When they say, "Well, I don't know why you want to talk to me because I had a I have a bad credit score. Like, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not in a position to talk to you about my financial the way I consume this product because I've been labeled as almost financially incompetent by this by this credit score. So, right. Um, they deferred a lot to the credit score as a marker of, you know, are you a financially savvy person? Um, can you be targeted for products? Can you, you know, enter the financial flow of, of money? Mm. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. I was wondering if you've observed something like that in, um, in the Netherlands too. And not with respect to credit scores or any sort of quantitative measurement. I haven't had anyone mention uh, such an, an indicator to me. Uh, when people talk about themselves in financial terms in a negative way, they tend to talk more about things like, oh, I'm really disorganised, oh, I'm embarrassed to show you my financial organisation in my household because uh, probably I'm doing it all wrong and I'm really disorganised and everyone else you interview will be better organised than I am. <laughs> so fears like that, you know. People, people seem to, to, to focus more on that organisational aspect, and uh, it's almost it's kind of moralised, you know. If they they talk as though if I were totally organised financially, then that would make me a, a better person. Mm -hmm. So there, there's definitely a, a connection between um, how you deal with your money and a kind of a moral judgment on on your character. Definitely, yeah. Absolutely. And I think what, what we've seen when it comes to the credit score is that the number itself becomes that judgment that comes upon you, you know, and just by, by, the, by the virtue of that number, that's already some, a judgment by default. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to also ask you about the moral, um, any moral considerations or ethical considerations that, you, that you've come across working in this sector. With respect to uh, consumer research or just generally like that, mm -hmm. I think the, the ethical concerns I've come across so far are really just the, the, I would say, the standard ones in doing any anthropological investigation, which is the protection of people's, uh, people's privacy. I think working with money especially 
it's, it's very personal and people really don't want their financial information to escape out into the world. And partly it is because of that, uh, that fear of, of being judged and partially, partially also because it's just their information and they have the right to say who, who has it and who doesn't. Um, there's also a fear that data will escape and somehow will be used against them in the future. So, for example, um, I have a, 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 there was one interviewee who has uh, very bad health and she expressed a concern to me that if her data escaped, then perhaps someday in the future uh, an insurance company might refuse her daughter insurance because they would assume that the, the condition was hereditary. So people actually do have these, mm. these fears that somehow they will be financially punished or even that their children will be financially punished because of some kind of uh, problem that they have. Mm. Okay. That's, that's so interesting. Um, I was wondering, um, it's, it's so, it's almost, we are almost nearing the hour and I, I know I kind of have to police myself with the content, not to go, not, not to go too overboard. But one of the, one of the things that we would like to ask, um, our speakers is in regards to, um, um, to, to, for example, people still being in academia considering what are the paths that they could take with, with their anthropological, um, education. Um, and I was wondering if you could if you could speak a bit to to that. Um, how do you uh, reflect upon your career and decide kind of like where do I go next, right? <laughs> what is the avenue that excites me right now? Yeah, there are, there are lots of ways to approach that. I would say in the first instance to anyone who is thinking of uh, jumping out of academia and is afraid that it's a wrong decision, just Try not to worry so much. Uh, I think that there are many, many options out there. There are many things that can be done. It can be a bit of a, a path to try to find where you fit in the outside world and which skills you really have. I think jumping into a corporate environment will really highlight to you uh, where your strengths lie and maybe you have strengths that you didn't realise you had because you saw them as just being normal, something that everyone had. So, for example, uh, our research skills shouldn't be underestimated. Anthropology teaches you many things in research and more than you might think. So it teaches us to ask really good questions. It teaches us to be able to talk to people and empathise with people. It actually teaches us to be really, really good analysts because what anthropologists do is even though we often talk to people on the ground at a personal level, we're always thinking about the bigger cultural and social and economic patterns. We're always looking for the patterns across the population. So actually we are excellent analysts and I think that is a skill that can be used in many, many areas. And I would also not underestimate our relationship with data that might be a bit more quantitative or the organisation of data. I found that uh, unbeknownst to me, I have great skills in organising data and I'm actually, even though I'm not a statistician remotely, I do qualitative work, I have um, an ability to work with, uh, with data sets and sort of basic statistics uh, that is not something that everybody has because... When you do research, that trains you to think in terms of data, manage data, look after the quality of data, make sure data sets are complete. Mm -hmm. And that is a skill that applies no matter whether your training is more qualitative or more quantitative. And that is a really good skill in any workplace. That is excellent. Erin, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Yeah, and I hope you have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Great talking with you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.